Welcome to episode 6 of the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim, I am your host. Now let's listen in as Steve tells the story of a very thirsty Jesus and gives us a history lesson on Samaria. Don't forget to email your questions or comments to podcast at impactnations.com. I've been excited to teach you on chapter 4. <clears throat> this is a very, very famous chapter. And uh, again, there's, there's more to say than we have time. But I'm going to start at verse 6, John 4, 6 to 26. Um, the, where Jesus... Uh, oh, is 6 really where I want to start? Yeah, Jesus was in Jacob's well. Jacob's well was there. Uh, and Jesus... Worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God... And who is saying to you, give me a drink? You would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and, uh, uh, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who draws from uh, this water will get thirsty again. Drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to drink water, to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus replied. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Now that's got to rank as one of the best known episodes in the Gospels, right? And uh, it's interesting that John is the only one who uh, introduces a Samaritan. We have, we have a parable in, in uh, Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, but John is the only one. So let me give you a little background, because we've all learned <coughs> that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along, right? Everybody knows that? Let me give you a little bit of background. 
Samaritans had been part of the mix in Israel for over 700 years. Jesus made the term Samaritan famous through uh, this episode and especially the Good Samaritan. But the term has a radically different meaning, had a radically different meaning to his listeners than to our 21st century ears. A Good Samaritan is is a complimentary phrase, right? Samaritans were hated by the Jews. So why? Who were the Samaritans? Well, number one, some of the Samaritans were descendants of the remnant that was not deported uh, by the conquering Assyrians in, all the way back in 722 BC, uh, before ever the Babylonians came, um, 100 and whatever it is, 130 years before that, the Assyrians came to the northern kingdom, to Israel. And when they conquered them, they took most of the people away, but they left some there. So some go back to there. Others were descendants of foreigners who were transported from around the Assyrian Empire and put into northern Israel. Uh, By the way, they mainly came from Babylon, which Assyria in those days had conquered, and from uh, what is now Persia, or we know as Persia. They were brought to the northern kingdom because they were loyal to the Assyrians, not because they were loyal to the Israelites, all right? Now, from the beginning, these Samaritans refused to worship in Jerusalem. And this went all the way back to Jeroboam. Remember Jeroboam? Remember after Solomon dies and the, and the, and the whole thing with his son Rehoboam and then Jeroboam, and that's where you've got the northern and the southern kingdom. It goes all the way back there. Um, the uh, Samaria because a Samaritan is from Samaria, right? That is a region that was named after the city of Samaria that was established by one of the kings. If you want to make notes, it's, it's King Omri, 1 Kings 16.24. I was just reading about that the other day. Now, so that goes, that's the ancient history. And you say, well, why can't they settle their differences? Well, because in the 2nd century BC, there was a war with the Syrians. Right? Another country. And, and those Samaritans sided with the Syrians, not with the Israelites, not with the Jews. Uh, and in uh, 128 BC, the Jewish high priest retaliated for this by going up to the mountain that she refers to, Mount Gerizim, and burning down their temple. Okay? So that's the background. You could see why they would get on each other's nerves a little bit. Okay. So now let's get to the passage. This is, remember, John structures this gospel. I keep saying it, but I want us to get it. This is structured so carefully. Remember in chapter 2, the first place he takes his disciples, the first ones to follow him. Where is the first place? He take them to the synagogue? Take them to the temple? Took them to a party. Took him to the wedding. Remember we talked about that? Now we have another first. This is the first time that Jesus is traveling on mission. Okay? We don't see him traveling until here. So John creates, gives us this snapshot. And by doing that, John is showing us that Jesus is comfortable among a foreign, mistrusted race. 
And isn't it interesting? The mission to Samaria begins with a foreign woman. A foreigner, a woman, and not only that, a woman with a very bad reputation. That's where Jesus began his first mission trip in John's Gospel. Jesus was going against the common socio-political worldview of his society. He said, I don't care what my society thinks. This is what I do. I think there's a lesson right in there for us too, by the way. In following Jesus, you will often go counterculturally to the, the common socio-political view. Jesus was breaking down walls of separation. Remember I said to you, one of John's themes that develops all the way through his gospel is inclusion. We see these episodes, they're really sometimes very poignant, poignant encounters. And we see it here, it's proactive inclusion and proactive reconciliation. He takes the initiative. Samaritans, I want you to think about this. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. Samaritans were a, a minority group surrounded by a majority group, the Jews, who were themselves uh, an occupied nation from the Romans. But, but the Samaritans are a minority group. And as is typical 2,000 years ago and this week, <laughs> a minority group is always looked down upon, is usually taken advantage of, is not spoken well of, and is mistrusted by the majority. That's just the way it is. And that's where Jesus went. To the mistrusted minority group. Do you see how strategic John's writing is? So, we just think about it for a minute. Think about how difficult it is to be in a minority group. It's disempowering. It's, it's frustrating. Think of the resentment. Think of the hopelessness. I could, I could use examples in this city. I could use examples in this country. I can use examples in the country where we come from, Canada. It is, it is universal, folks. The majority group looks down and disempowers the minority group. So I just want you to think about that. So now we begin this interaction that he has with this woman. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. That's verse 6. This is the only place in the Gospels where it specifically says that Jesus was tired. Now, it is implied that he was sleeping in the back of the boat in Mark 4, right? But this is where he made a point of saying, Jesus was tired. So what's he doing here? Why did he say it? Well, Jesus is coming in weakness. And John is emphasizing that Jesus is fully human. I'm going to keep going back to that prologue. The first 18 verses of John. It lays the foundation for, for everything in John. And it is about the incarnation. You guys all know that word. There's another word, homostasis, which you might not know, but it's a really good word. And it is 
thorough, complete merging of, of the human and the divine. Jesus was fully human. He never left his humanity. And he was fully divine. And it's one of the great mysteries that, that, that led to, to centuries of councils and meetings and discussions and gradually writing creeds. And I think the high water marks the Nicene Creed. But that, that he's, he's showing us he was God. He is God. He is the Word of God and He is God. Remember the first three verses? But he's making a point of saying, oh yes, and just as fully, he was man. And he was tired. Nothing's wasted here, guys. And as you look at Jesus, what's the first thing he does with this woman? He says, man, I'm thirsty. Could you give me a drink? We see Jesus taking the low place. The low place. He is... He is connecting with this woman who lives in probably the lowest place in town. And he reaches out to her. Verse 7, notice that Jesus connects with a broken person. And he doesn't come in with answers. He, doesn't, he comes in with asking her help. He comes down to her level. Please, would you give me a drink? So, he comes in weakness, not strength. And I think this is a key for us. I think we have way too often, way too often, come in strength. We've come with answers that people, to, that they're not asking the question yet. Jesus comes in a low place. And I can show you lots of different spots. One of my favorites is John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus gets right down low in the ground. But that'll be for another week. And you see in this interaction, it's a wonderful dialogue. What you see in Jesus is total attentiveness to her. This woman, who has been rejected and so forth, his attentiveness is shouting to her, you are valuable to me. You are special to me. And of course, at first the woman is surprised and, and guarded. Um, but he, he persists. If you look at verse 10, he, he doesn't give up. And in fact, I think I'll, I'll read that verse 10 and put it in my notes. Um, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Living water is literally moving water. Uh, water that's in a stream. Water, maybe even over a waterfall. Moving water. And it's better than any water that can be found in a well. To me, again, this gives another image of the whole movement we see. The movement of God in this gospel. Historically, I think I told you last week, theologians referred to this movement of God as the dance of the triune God. I'd love to talk some more some other night about that. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this interaction is always in movement. In movement. And the water means literally, if you'd have known, you'd have asked me, and I would have given you moving water. Now, where are they? They're in a well. 
And in scripture, wells have great, great significance. Especially this. Remember in uh, Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant. I want you to go find a wife for my son Isaac. And he goes and he meets Rebecca where? At a well. A generation later, Jacob goes to a well and he meets Rachel. Right? These are, these are the matriarchs of the entire nation. And both of these classic stories would have been known from childhood by every Jew. What is going on here? The bridegroom comes to the well. The bridegroom comes to the well. Remember, multiple layers of meaning. Okay, and John, keep paying attention to the details. No other gospel tells this story. This is such an important story, right? Everybody knows about the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, Jacob's well, all these phrases. Nobody else tells it. Why does John tell it? Because he's writing, as I told you before, he's writing a generation after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he is addressing the issue of Jesus is fully man, Jesus is fully God, and he has come for a bride. And of course that's developed in Revelation too. So if you'd have asked me, I'd have given you living water, moving water. Jesus came to bring life, moving dynamic life to everyone who's thirsty. And he does this as a bridegroom in search of a bride. I think John's also giving us a really practical lesson here. Um, uh, Ezekiel 47, remember he has the vision of the the river that, that comes from the threshold of the temple, remember? And, and at first it's up to the ankles, and it's up to the knees, the waist, and then a river that no man could cross. Remember that one? It's always interesting to me that the further from the temple, the deeper the water is. It says, and where the river flows, everything shall live. Everything shall live. Folks, he is speaking to uh, a society that was 90 to 95% illiterate. But as a result, their auditory memory we would be flabbergasted by. Because from their time to this, they learn to repeat and memorize what they've heard. So they knew the scripture. And where the river flows, everything shall live. Where the moving water is. In our encounters, we can learn from Jesus here. Be gentle, be humble, come from a low place, a weak place, instead of strength. And this brings life to people. This brings living water to people. You know what stops most people? From, I just, there's a, a, a man that I've been discipling and he called me today. And, and what ties him up, it was yesterday, what ties him up is, what if I don't know what to say? I don't know how, I haven't got a plan. Beautiful. <laughs> the wind blows where it's will. We need to be willing to come in a weak place, an unprepared place, because that's what brings life. Okay? Today's episode is brought to you by the iThirst Fund. Did you know that Impact Nations has brought the gift of clean water to hundreds of thousands of people in the last 13 years? In almost every community we visit, contaminated water is causing severe illness and even death. By going house to house to distribute water filters, we can eliminate those diseases and help people reach their true potential. 
at a cost of only $65 each, a filter can be shared by as many as five homes. And of course, whenever we install a filter, we're also telling people about the living water that is Jesus. That is good news to the poor. We couldn't do this without our amazing donors. If you'd like to be one of those donors, visit impactnations.com slash cleanwater. And now back to the podcast. He says, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well. By the way, the word there means artesian well. You all know what an artesian well is? Okay. Will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. John is expressing the eternal, unsearchable depths of the gospel. And the more you read John, the more you see that. You see it in developing through his gospel. You see it in his letters. It is the incredible depth of this gospel. Let's go down to verse 16 to 18. Then he says, seems like it's out of the blue. He says, oh, go call your husband. And it seems abrupt, almost harsh. What Jesus is doing with that phrase is he's saying, you don't have to hide anything from me. I already know, I always knew about the five husbands and the guy you're living with now. And I've loved being with you and talking with you and interacting with you. It is really a statement of acceptance and inclusion. She says, well, I, I have no husband. I promise you, I can't promise you, in my opinion, she didn't say, oh, I have no husband. When she said, I have no husband, it was a cry of pain. It was a cry of deep shame. It was a cry of a rejected life. That's why she's there in the middle of the day, right? You've all heard that before. The reason she's drawing water at noon in a Mediterranean climate, nobody would do that, and that's exactly why she did that, because the rest of the town wouldn't be there. This was the the scarlet woman. When she said, I have no husband, I hear nothing but deep, deep to the core of her being, shame and pain. I think I told you last week, guilt says I did something wrong, shame says I am something wrong. But you know, there's a few things to learn from this. This is why it's kind when he brings her to this place, because he won't let her hide. See, what is denied cannot be healed. That's why. The, the witness of all four Gospels is you've got to repent, you've got to turn. You can't keep going your same way and add Jesus, oh yeah, now I believe the four spiritual laws. There's a turning. What is denied cannot be healed. And I have lots of things that I think I've not denied anything else and then the Lord says, hey, what about this? Go get your husband, he says to me. Because he won't let me live in denial. What is denied cannot be healed. Jesus invites us to accept the truth of our failure and our 
brokenness. I'm convinced that that's what was going on at the cross. Let me give you a wonderful quote I read the other day by Richard Rohr. I like Richard Rohr a lot. The Word of God calls us to greater wisdom. The only way the Lord can do so is by making things fall apart. That's called suffering. It's how God shows us that life is always bigger than we presently imagine it. Faith allows us to deliberately live in a shaky position, so we have to rely on another. God gets closer blow by blow. Isn't that terrific? So, she starts to kind of do a little sidestep like we all do when things are getting too warm. With, throws up some theology. You know this passage. But then Jesus' response in verse 21 is really interesting. He says, An hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Because she said, Well, our, our people say you mount on this mountain, on Kerizim, he says, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What is John doing? You've got to get this, please. He is continuing to reveal that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new Sabbath. He, that's why he is Lord of time. He's outside of time. That's a whole topic for another night. And he is... He is the Lord of space. In this case, it's the temple. The temple it was the meeting point of heaven and earth. All the Jews believed that. And he's saying, I'm the new temple. John 2.19, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was speaking about the sanctuary of his body, verse 21 says. In John 7, 37 and 38, remember on the, on the great day, the last and the great day of the festival, Jesus stands up and in a loud voice says, If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Remember that, John 7, 37? Jesus declared himself to be the very source of living water. And he said this, in the context of the high point of the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was all about the temple. About the temple, okay? I'm trying to show you here, it's a little bit subtle in chapter 4, but you can see it. He is saying Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is that connecting point between heaven and earth. Okay? So, by the way, when he said that, if anyone is thirsty, uh, it was on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle, and on the last day, this is interesting, the high priest would fill a golden pitcher with water, and with great ceremony, and a choir would begin to repeat, Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You see, every Jew would have known that. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This was the moment when Jesus stood up and said, Oh, by the way, if anybody's thirsty, let him come and drink. Jesus says that rivers of living water, the rivers that Ezekiel prophesied, would flow from him, the new temple. 
You would have asked for me and I would have given you living water. I would have given you moving water. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus doesn't engage in debate. Instead, he quickly pushes aside her religious tradition. And he says, an hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Let's unpack this briefly. Jesus will give the Holy Spirit. He tells us that, that whole wonderful passage in John 14, 15, and 16, right? He says, i got to go, but I'm going to give you a helper, the Holy Spirit, right? He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to unpackage this thing about, uh, we'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is worshipped as Father by those who have the Holy Spirit inside them. The Holy Spirit makes them the Father's children. Now, where do I get that? From the Bible. Romans 8, 15 and 16, Paul says, You received the Spirit, capital S, of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So then... She says, in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. To me, this is so poignant, because verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. Is that what it's saying most of your Bible translations? Literally, he said, I am speaks to you. The first time in John's Gospel that Jesus reveals his hidden name, and the only time he tells one person personally, he reveals who he really is, I am, to an outcast, a lonely, broken woman. John is shouting out who Jesus has come for. Isn't that poignant? The gospel is about good news right now. It's not conditional. It's not good news if you pray the right prayer or you do the right thing. It is good news, not maybe good news. It is always radically inclusive. Can you see why John put this episode in? It's radically inclusive. We're called to follow the radically inclusive one who had no boundaries. And what the Lord has challenged me, and I've welcomed him to challenge me, for probably 27 or 8 years, Lord, would you show me where the boundaries are in my life? Would you show me where the safe places are that I keep? Who do I let in? Who do I pursue? Who do I reach out to? So this is John 4. Rich, huh? Any questions or comments? Yeah. You can kind of hear the sarcasm in her voice whenever she's talking about it first. But Jesus is always trying to bring that good news to her. 
and he does this with Nicodemus too. I mean, always trying to direct them into his his plan for their life rather than just leaving them where they're at. That's good. That's good. And it's radical acceptance, isn't it? Yeah. Radical inclusion. Proactive. He initiates. Yeah. Anybody else? Sure. So when she said, give me the water to drink, do you think she was saying, like, I am tired of coming to this well, I'm dragging on this water? Yeah. Or do you think at that point she had a spiritual insight and said, I am sick of my life and I want to be free? The answer is yes. <laughs> I think I think we see somebody else in process. He's showing us people in process. Nicodemus in process toward seeing, perceiving, heavenly things. And we watch her. I see in her this great change. And in case we don't, we're not sure that there's a change. She leaves the scene. The guys come back with lunch. And we're told that she goes to the very town that shamed her. And said, come meet a man who told me everything. And she said it with such freedom that it brought a whole town out. And they entreated Jesus, please stay with us. So we know that she processed. I think in the beginning, I'm not sure, but I've always thought she was taking him literally at first. Man, this means I won't have to come to the well every day. But she, it started to go, and then by the time she starts talking about Messiah, when he says, I am, she's there. I think she's still being sarcastic right there. I, I just, you know, I think, you know, it's that different. Well, we, we read it differently, you know. I, I, we read it differently because I think the acceptance, I think the radical acceptance to me would break down the sarcasm. But, who knows? Any, anybody else? Do you see the multiple layers of meaning? Do you see the, 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 the when he talks, when John's using the term living water, and he's talking about heavenly things and earthly things, the journey he's taking us on, is that beginning to make sense to you guys? Pepper? And I'm kind of laboring that point, but when I read that Verse 15, it sounds like she saw the um, spiritual aspect of it as well as the physical. It's almost like she saw the two components. She said that I thirst not anymore, and he was saying that he said that he would give living water, and she said, and that I might not draw, not, might not have to come and draw it again either. It's like she could see where the eternal component So there's a parallel there. meaning there. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. the two components, and that the spiritual and the natural, that she, she found that would that in his statement of that fact. Very good. Very good. See, in some versions, it, um, in verse 6, it's the sixth hour, and some it says noon, and, oh. and mine, the one I've got right now, it says six in the evening. Yes. Why does this say six in the evening? Because it it's a, it's a, that it's the middle of the It day. is. It's a really, I, there's a couple of versions that say that, and then in, in the print they say, or or the sixth hour. Uh, the the vast majority of commentators say it's the sixth hour, which is noon. Because the first hour of the day is 6 a.m. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is rich, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This whole issue, I was doing some teaching on this a few weeks ago uh, when I was somewhere 
we were in some other place. <laughs> some country. I know I got on an airplane to say this. That, that uh, this whole thing of Jesus being outside of time and space and of him revealing himself as the new temple and the new Sabbath is really key, really important. N.T. Wright develops that a lot, and it's, it's very good. Um, you understand the context now for different things that he says, that it means multiple layers. All right. Thanks for joining us. Join us again next week for Episode 7. In the meantime, visit impactnations.org to learn about all the great things going on around the world. And be sure to email your questions or comments to podcast at impactnations.com.